Do you remember when MDMA went through there? A really good, I guess it was just MDA then before they changed the molecule. Were you ever there when that happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah MDA was uh, was a good. Yes. Good, good. Um, <laughs> it was good. It was, it was good. good. Yes, it, it was, was good. good. <laughs> Especially in the 80s and 90s, it was like, yeah. 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 And now it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's a different world. Huh. So what, we're talking about cops? I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 7, Stand Down. I feel pretty uncomfortable around cops, like most drug users. I've been arrested and roughed up more than once. And for a long time, police were openly contemptuous of drug users. But here in Vancouver, sometime in the mid-2000s, they started changing how they talk. They said they were no longer against harm reduction. They wanted to seem progressive. Last year, Chief Palmer said, we're a very fair, progressive, and open-minded police agency, and we were the first to call for treatment on demand. The VPD are making these claims at international conferences, but I'm skeptical. It doesn't feel like things have changed all that much to me. So I'm going to do something that I'm honestly a little wary of doing. I'm going to go down to the cop shop and interview the Vancouver police. But first, I wanted to talk to a few people in the trenches. Justin Van Westen is a buddy from the punk scene. We used to do a little drinking in public together. We were bored teenagers in Victoria. He's six foot four and 275 pounds, covered in tattoos and with a big beard. He loves wizard metal and deadlifting, and speed was his drug of choice. Justin has been an outreach worker in the neighborhood for 15 years. Over that time, he's been witness to all the different ways that police interact with harm reduction services. I asked Justin to show me around and explain just how these interactions work. So uh, we're coming up on the 100 block here. Oh, there's a cop pulling through the intersection. And uh, like, what do you see the police doing around uh, harm reduction spaces? Uh, you know, oh, it's interesting because like when you identify like OPS and um, and there's an active police unit as well. Um, I don't just think of just outside of their doors. I think of this block and the next block. Um, all the way from the 100 to the 0 block, all the way through, because that's where they're actually more engaged. We're, we're coming up on Insight here, and every other time I walk past here, I see a cop car often parked up on the sidewalk here. You ever see that? I have, definitely. Uh, what do you think they're doing there? Oh, well, you know, they're always, you know, if they can't grab the people inside, they're there to um, intimidate um, to make their presence known and, you know, to um, limit the, the, um, the individual's access to services as well as substances. So you worked in this neighborhood for 15 years. Have you seen this happen? Like people w- won't go up to a, a site or a building or a safe injection site that has cops or a cop car posted outside of it? I totally, all day. You know, especially like when we're down in this alley down here, so in the alley behind um, the OPS, um, 
the original site where the inhalation um, space is and the entrance to the OPS. Cops post in that alley all the time. Well, let's go there. Yeah, let's go there. Let's go see if there are some there. This bit of Hastings Street is where lots of services are clustered. Needle distribution, safe injection sites, methadone pharmacies, a small prescription heroin project, and Vandu is here too, as well as single-room occupancy hotels like the Balmoral and the Palace. Most buildings are over a century old, and they're all grouped close together. Sirens are a frequent sound. Down here, people live in small rooms, so the street's your living room. There's a sidewalk market, and everybody knows each other. People access the Overdose Prevention Society, or OPS, through a door in the alley. And the alley is um, full of people. Um, It's an actively used alley. Um, There's graffiti on the walls. Trey might be doing some of the graffiti here. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, when they park their cars in here, where do they park them? Um, sometimes they block the end of the alleys. Um, sometimes they just park right in front of the uh, the inhalation tent. And then the cops pull up and sit in front of it. They sit up in front of it. They walk up and down the alley. You know, um, and what that does is it interrupts the access. Um, people won't even come to the door when when the cops are here. Mm-hmm. Like it just slows down. And we're looking at, like, thousands of people a month that come through this space. When the cops are in this alley and no one uh, wants to expose themselves, you know, come to the door, what people do? I would suspect that people move to a different alley. Um, one of the things that happens in um, different OPSs and, and, and MOPs, so the mobs are run by PHS. This OPS is run by the Overdose Prevention Society. Um, we have a couple others. There's Vandu. There's um, uh, Sister Space, as well as uh, the Lookout Getaway. Um, all injection sites, as well as Insight. Some of those spaces don't allow people due to behavioral or complex issues um, around their experience in life, um, and they might not be able to manage certain spaces. This is one of those spaces. A guy in shorts and running shoes is slumped against the wall. His face is turning blue. Another man stands above him, trying to shake him awake. Right now we have somebody overdosing across the, uh, the hallway from, uh, across the alley from the inhalation site. People brought out an oxygen tank right away. Yeah, and um, they're about to give him Narcan. Hang on one sec. Hey bro, what you need? Have we got a Narcan yet? Half a dozen people reach for their Narcan kits. We all carry them down here. Okay, let's go. Pump those in. Second. Come on. There we go. Okay, there. You tilt that head. Let's go. Hey, buddy, can I get another one set up? Yeah, the lane. It's all right. I don't want to stick you in the Back way yeah, there. Yeah, oh, I don't know it's an emergency. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Uh, no, we have an oxygen mask on him right now. Okay. And we're pumping it. Yeah. And again. Well, I believe the opioid is on. Does anybody know yeah. what he took? Opioid? Yes. Yeah, and he took carfentanil. Apparently carfentanil. No. Uh, lips are blue. No, we have here we go. Here, this is it. Let's go. Here we go. Oh. Uh, yeah, we have a, like a pump, an oxygen pump, and an oxygen tank here. With us. I mean, it's yours, but you can have it. That sounds weird. Hey, James. Hey, James. There we are. Hey, how you doing, man? Hey, James. Hi. How you doing, my friend? Hi. Hi. Really fast, he was getting blue super fast. Then. Yeah, like I said, the Vensos thing, we started sending at the beginning of the year, and then we started sending the confirmatory to the Yeah. Nicely done. Keep those eyes open, okay? I love this guy, Justin, man. I've known him for 20 years. He just jumps right in there. Yeah, he was just fucking fast. I want him around, man, if I fall out. Like, I... No, he, he, he. I guess he was the ambulance, is it? Okay. Yeah. One of the things that you can do. Slowly, James sits up. Justin offers him a drink of water. So when we were when we were going to the alley just behind the overdose prevention site, we were talking with Justin there, and a guy dropped right there, and everybody jumps in, uh, and Justin's really leading the charge. He calls for Narcan, you know, five hands come out with Narcan kits, and and he, and he brings the guy back, but there was no cops in the alley at that point. Yeah. So if there were cops in the alleyway, would those people even have been there? This is Ryan McNeil, Crackdown Science Advisor. Our team's been doing ethnographic and community-based research in the downtown east side for years. And part of that means we're spending time in spaces where people are using, we're spending time in overdose prevention sites, and all the alleyways that surround them. And we regularly observe cops patrolling these spaces, driving through them, stopping people, and intervening in ways that actually mean that people won't go there. And that might mean that that person who dropped of an overdose would be injecting alone somewhere without anybody else around to bring them back. Or it would mean that those folks who were there who helped wouldn't have been there to provide that help. Police have the tools to control where you go, like red zones, these legal conditions applied by the courts or by the cops themselves. After you've been charged with something, they can stick you with lots of different kinds of conditions, even if you haven't been found guilty of anything yet. They can ban you from specific parts of the city, your red zone. And if the cops find you there, they can lock you up. So in work that we've done around red zones in the past, we found that people are commonly red zoned or prohibited from going to effectively the blocks in the downtown east side where you have the greatest concentration of harm reduction services, 
where you have insight, where you have overdose prevention sites. And effectively, what the person has to ask themselves, especially within the context of ongoing drug use, is am I going to breach my red zone or am I going to access something that might keep me alive? And this is the real risk involved with the routine policing that happens in the downtown east side right now. It's deciding that policing, quote unquote, public order is a greater priority than people's lives right now. And that happens for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that it's a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. And there's real pressure placed on the police by incoming residents into the downtown east side to, quote unquote, clean up the neighborhood. Uh, there's a condo building, a new development that's right across the street from Insight. Uh, and we've seen, uh, we've gotten access, uh, screenshots from their residents' Facebook group. And the residents of this new condo development are all talking to each other about what a scourge the, the people who live in the neighborhood are, um, how unclean things are. They exchange strategies, uh, very stigmatizing strategies um, on how to talk to the police and, and how to get complaints through. So these people are obviously reaching out. They even name the cops they're reaching out to. And, and then the cops are responding with what, what you're saying here. And I guess that's multiplied over by several buildings. Yeah, and like if we take that building specifically, the police started increasing their police presence in the downtown east side in response to complaints from people living in that building. And this really raises the question of whose lives matter right now? So you have a range of different policing strategies unfolding that all function to move people, in this case, further east. But what that also does is it moves them further away from critical life-saving overdose prevention sites and other things that they need every day to survive. Do you, do you think they, uh, they have an intention there? Like when they're, uh, when they're parking outside of an OPS, when they're shaking people down outside of a, a harm reduction site, what do you think they're trying to do? There was one one day in the spring, it was check day, busy like check day always is, and I was walking around with a, a colleague who was here from out of town, and we were cutting up that alleyway that I mentioned earlier, Jason, to Insight, which is where the Maple Overdose Prevention Site's located, and a cop car starts slowly inching up the alleyway as people are clearing out the other end. And the manager of the overdose prevention site effectively pops out and is like, you know, what the fuck are you doing? When you do this, it means that people don't come here. And the cop just continues to itch, inch forward up the alleyway. So, you know, I can say it's hard to peer into the heart of somebody and guess at what their intentions are. But the reality is that has a specific impact. And what that impact is, is it restricts people's access to life-saving services in the middle of a crisis. None of this has surprised me. I've heard it all before forever. And unfortunately, we normalize it. It just becomes part of the fabric of life. But Ronnie Gregg told me a couple of things that were new to me. Right. So you're, you're working at the OPS Vancouver, uh, you know, saving people, reversing overdoses, and the cops are now making regular just intimidation visits or something? Yeah. Hey, hey Patrick, how's it going? Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. So so that, that was starting to happen. And, and without without uh, any acknowledgement that like as a manager of a site that it might be good to have a conversation with me and to and to uh, support my running of the site you know? Ronnie worked at the OPS and insight he's not a drug user but he's reversed hundreds of overdoses with long hair and a beard people call him Narcan Jesus what does this mean when there's cop cars parked outside what does it change for people who want to use the OPS 
Uh, it's the the fundamental success of supervised consumption sites is is trust, and that's building trust with the drug user, right? Because of years of of stigma and 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 punishing policies and incarceration and social isolation and all of that stuff, that's that's the that's the 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 bedrock work of supervised consumption, right? And of course, the big fear is cops, right? Are we giving information to police? Are we all this kind of stuff, right? So, so building that trust and 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 uh, respecting people's privacy. One one of the fundamentals of that is people don't have to use their real name to use one of these sites, right? They can make up any fucked up name they want to gain gain access to to the site, right? And, and we like, yeah, we got Robin Williams and Wu Tang come to uh, visit the yeah. Insight injection or the um, sorry the Vandu injection exactly, room all the time. Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, we had Rob Ford for a while at at, uh, at Insight, and <laughs> like not the real Rob not Ford, the real right? Rob because Ford. back in the day, the real Rob Ford probably could have used somewhere safe to entirely, smoke crack. Entirely. Here's a cop behind you right now. What's? <laughs> I don't know. I, he's, he's not familiar to me. You know, and. and he's, there's another old cop trick that's always bothered me. They call lots of us by name. Mr. Mullins, they would call out to me in mock camaraderie. This happens to Ronnie, too. And, and one of the things that happened, I had three, a number of incidences with those cops coming up to me and saying, hey, Ronnie, how's it going? And, and, and asking personal questions, right? I mean, that's the, that's the thing about this, this 12 square blocks around here, right, is we all know them, but, you know, yeah red hair or ball cap or yep. Superman or whatever. And then they all know us by yep. first name and stuff. It's a very precarious kind of dodgy thing. And, um, and would come up and go, hey, you know, talk to me like I'm their buddy, right? So I said, uh, so I just asked them, am I under arrest? Uh, do you need to talk to me about police business? You then, think that talking to you like a buddy stuff, I, I, I've seen this a, a bunch. Uh, is that also like a trust eroding move? In, entirely, it, and, and like yelling out from their truck, like their crew, their police vehicle, like my name, hi Ronnie, and waving and all, all that stuff. Not not just to me, but to the right, other. like we all go bowling together. Yeah, or something. yeah, um, yeah. It's and 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 in some way, I almost it's hard not to consider it um, um, intimidation. You know, like because uh, sometimes they go, what, what, "What are you afraid of?" And I'm like, "I what what leads you to believe I'm afraid?" You know, th- those kinds of things, and having to like use that language, like, "Why why should I think about being afraid right now?" Um, like you you introduce that that thought to me. You know, you, you know what I mean. Cops parking outside or calling you by name says, "We're here. We got our eyes on you." But cops are also trying to send a message to other people to sow doubt in their minds, like hey, maybe this guy's working with the cops. Maybe he's a rat. Vancouver police say they no longer show up at overdoses, but Ronnie says they've obstructed his staff in responding to ODs. This makes OPS staff gun-shy to call 911 for the paramedics because sometimes the cops show up anyway and sometimes they get in the way. That's what happened to Laura Shaver. Laura's on our editorial board. One day a few winters back, she's working in an OPS tent in the alley. She told the story to local journalist Travis Lupic. So we ended up giving the man four um, shots of naloxone, mouth-to-mouth compressions. He came back. Police officer walks up. Um, I'm standing up trying to, you know, get dry, catch my breath, and he starts interrogating me. Like, where do you live? What's your name? What's your address? And being a total jerk. 
the guy's still on the ground in the water um, waiting for the ambulance, but the only police officer on site is over over here harassing me. Then he starts talking to me, just, just being a jerk, telling me, okay, well, go get under your tent. And it's, he didn't care about the person that was dying. He cared about the person that was the one who was giving him mouth to mouth to keep him alive. What happened to the Someone I know tells me this thing that happened to him recently, but I'm not going to put him on here. In fact, I decided to not put anyone who's had recent run-ins with the VPD on crackdown. We talked to a dozen people for this episode, but the neighborhood is too small. The local beat cops know lots of us by name. I'm worried about getting people into trouble, and I'm worried about their safety. If you're black or indigenous or you got a warrant, the risks just multiply. Anyway, so I'm going to call this guy Barney, and I'm going to tell you his story. Barney's been wired for a long time. Like lots of people, he sometimes slings dope to support his habit. His boss is a low-level supplier. Barney's OD'd a couple of times, so he's careful that the dope he sells won't kill anybody. He's got a code. And Barney says anybody who's reckless about this sort of thing is a goof. In fact, the dope Barney sells is so weak, he doesn't do it himself. He buys off somebody else for his personal use. Late one night, there's a lull. The snow is keeping people inside. Barney lights a smoke and thinks about packing it in. Suddenly, cops roll up on him. Barney knows the drill. This isn't his first time. The cops have tried to flip him before, to get him to testify against his boss. But he's no rat, so he took the jail time instead. This is what Barney expects to happen now. But this time, the cops don't arrest him. They just take his drugs and cash, and they let him go. Uh, folks um, describe it oftentimes as jacking up, and it's basically when police are going up to folks um, and confiscating drugs, money, etc., but not providing any written receipts, not carrying out arrests. So ultimately, the stats around arrests for uh, drug possession can remain quite low, while at the same time, people are experiencing the same thing on the ground, which is having their stuff taken from them and then having to find it somewhere else. This is Caitlin Shane. I'm a lawyer with Pivot Legal Society, and my focus is on drug policy. And this seizing people's cash and drugs, when did you first start hearing about this? Years ago. It's been kind of an ongoing thing. Um, But certainly in the last year or so, um, I've been hearing about it a lot. Right. So you might be thinking, okay, the cops take your shit, but at least they're not arresting you and charging you. But getting your shit jacked can have terrible consequences. Barney tells me that getting his shit jacked means that suddenly he owes his boss 2500 bucks. No arrest means no paperwork. And so we can't prove what happened to him. At first, Barney actually worried he was really going to get the shit kicked out of him. Instead, he's got to work off the debt. For as long as I can remember, this has been like a feature of policing on the downtown east side. It's just seizing what you got and... That's it. Sometimes they just rub it into the pavement or whatever. But there's been this increase that you're noticing. And I hear this too. And is this as they're trying to shift away from something that generates statistics about arrests? They're they're doing these things that don't? Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, over the last several years, there's been kind of this framing of substance use as a public health issue rather than a matter of of criminal justice coming from um, the very top levels of government. And it's kind of this messaging of needing to treat this as a public health concern, despite the fact, of course, that 
Controlled Drugs and Substances Act provisions remain in place uh, and, and these things remain illegal, but there has been this change in tone. And I think that in order to get on side with that general framing, um, police departments know that it doesn't look good at this point in time in the middle of an opioid crisis to be carrying out arrests uh, for people in possession of very small amounts of drugs for personal use. And so I, I certainly think it adds to the image of being progressive. Uh, definitely in the Vancouver Police Department, there's an air of um, congratulatory sort of we don't enforce these things. Um, and while it may be true, I'm, I'm not sure that it's true, but the confiscation is still happening regularly. The police tell us that they don't arrest anyone for simple possession anymore. But researcher Susan Boyd has data from Stats Canada that tells a different story. She found discrepancies between the number of drug arrests reported by the VPD and the number from Stats Canada. These numbers can be hard to parse, depending on what kinds of arrests and circumstances are included or excluded from the statistic. And out on the street, people report that cops are increasing the charges to include possession for the purposes of trafficking. Pivot visited places across BC. They interviewed a lot of people, and they found out that what we're seeing in Vancouver is happening all over the province. Police outside of OPSs, hassling people, stop and searches, all that stuff. The cops tell us that they're shifting the focus to the big players, not just street-level drug users, but really the powerful TV-style drug lord is not who they're locking up. I think there's a ton of consequences that there is an unwillingness to acknowledge. And again, it goes back to this kind of dichotomized idea of players in the drug market. It's like the the marginalized drug user versus the kingpin and not acknowledging the harms that are going to flow, even if you do make some dent in the higher level of the chain. It's going to have an effect on the people that you're allegedly protecting. I think, you know, if if... They were somehow able to, to, you know, stop the flow of drugs. I don't think that's possible. But even then, they're accelerating us towards the next thing. Like the more you go and force heroin, the the more you incentivize people to come up with something smaller and more potent, like fentanyl. And then now we're seeing the emergence of carfentanil because there's been enforcement and actions to limit fentanyl. It's like they're driving us towards the next uh, worst thing in a way. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that the situation that we're in now is in large part the result of heavy-handed prohibition. You know, I think all of us agree it's time to rip off the mask of of what is actually happening here and deal with the issue. Um, People do not have access to legal, regulated, um, clean prescription-grade drugs, and this is the result. I think it's time to hear what the VPD have to say. Now, I don't usually walk into a cop shop voluntarily. I've been arrested several times. I've had my head knocked off the pavement. I've had my face bounced off the hood of a cruiser. I've been pepper sprayed in a cell and I've gotten kicked so hard in the kidneys that I pissed blood. They know me for all the usual reasons, but also because I've been an activist in this city for years. One time, I was walking down Hastings with an academic. She was doing research on police culture in Vancouver. And she tells me, if we see the police, I'm going to pretend not to know you. And I was like, thanks for the solidarity. But she said, they don't like you. She said, they have a picture of you on the dartboard in their locker room. So yeah, I am nervous. 
but I have a few questions and I want some answers. Hey, hey. Yep, check one, check two. Let me just get it in this thing. I don't think we've right ever, now. you and I have ever met. I know you've been active in the community for a long time, and mm-hmm. I don't think you and I have ever met. But uh, right. well, I'm to meet you. glad to finally meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, could you introduce yourself for the for the tape, Steve? Yeah, my name's Constable Steve Addison, and I'm a media relations officer here at the Vancouver Police Department. Well, thanks for being on Crackdown, Constable. I'm pleased to be here. Um, we have just a, a few questions, but I know you can't get into very, you know, specific cases. So we're going to yeah. zoom out a little bit on some policy stuff, and then a little bit of examples and anything. But uh, so just going back to 2006, um, the VPD kind of went through a a shift in policy, um, you know, the four pillars and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So there's kind of an acknowledgement that harm reduction has a role there. Um, but since then, there's been this major overdose crisis that's really come to the fore since, you know, 2014, 15, 16, and it just doesn't seem to be going away. What's the VPD's role in the overdose crisis? Well, as a police department, the Vancouver Police Department, we support uh, harm reduction. We support the four, the four pillars approach, which is enforcement, uh, treatment, uh, prevention, and um, harm reduction. So with regards to the overdose crisis or the opioid crisis, uh, we've taken a very progressive approach working with uh, community partners in the downtown Eastside, uh, staff at Insight, uh, who we meet with regularly and, and work closely with them uh, to uh, gain a better understanding of what's going on in the community, uh, to help people in the community. Ultimately, uh, we support, as a police agency, we support uh, harm reduction in various forms. We support Insight. We believe that it saves lives. and We want people to use uh, not only Insight but other harm reduction facilities, uh, whether they be supervised injection sites or needle exchanges. Our goal is to uh, get to young people when they're still in schools um, and educate them about the perils of drug use. And in terms of uh, enforcement at the street level, um, we haven't for a long time uh, focused on enforcement against uh, street-level drug users or people who are who are addicted. We target more organized and sophisticated uh, money-making drug operations, the people who manufacture, produce, and sell uh, harmful drugs uh, to people. Uh, it's really a multifaceted approach where we work with our community partners. Uh, we deal with um, uh, people that we meet on the street. We uh, encourage people through education uh, to make healthy life choices. And uh, we hope that uh, through our harm reduction uh, advocacy that people will use uh, the, the facilities uh, that have been uh, created and fought for and established in the downtown east side uh, to help people avoid uh, the perils of, of overdoses. So it seems like <clears throat> I've definitely heard that before from Chief Palmer and folks, but it seems like there's a disconnect with what happens on the street. Uh, you know, we talked to, for, for, for making this show, we talked to um, two or three people who run uh, harm reduction sites. We talked to a lawyer from Pivot, and we talked to a couple of dozen people um, who are just uh, rank and file drug users. And a pattern of 
activity on the street of practices from cops emerges. We also have looked at research where people have tracked um, the the amount of these practices. So we we see police cars parked at harm reduction places frequently. I, I see this all the time out front. You see police patrols marching right through the floor on into these places. Uh, you know, going going inside. Uh, you see police shaking people down. You know, stop and search right outside of these places. And this has kind of two effects is it dissuades people from going when you're around. And we, we know this absolutely for sure. But also it starts to erode the trust of people to go into those places because they think, oh, this, this safe injection site is working with the cops. They're just collecting information here. And, and while that may not be the case, um, you know, I know people, we, we have people who work on this program who won't go to those places because they believe that. So how can, you, how can the VPD be, be for harm reduction in a public-facing way, but then on the street, kind of do these things that actually dissuade people from going. Okay, so there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack within within that question. Sure. So maybe we'll break it down. Um, you talk about police cars that are that are parked in front of harm reduction facilities. So in the in the downtown east side, we have a dedicated group of police officers, the members of the beat enforcement team, and it's four teams of officers that are responsible for patrolling the neighborhood roughly from Canby Street to Gore and a couple of blocks east, uh, north and south of, of Hastings Street that includes Chinatown and Gastown. And uh, their, their mandate is really to be a visible police presence, uh, to help the community, to serve the community, to help people in need, and also to deter crime. Um, as part of that, those officers are expected to be visible in the community, and that involves parking vehicles at strategic locations throughout the downtown east side. So parking vehicles outside of Insight or the overdose prevention site or the Molson, these are strategic locations for you guys? So when I say a strategic location, the 100 block of East Hastings Street is, is quite a central location of the downtown east side. So it's a block away from the police station. It's, uh, it makes a vehicle easily, easily accessible. Any any police vehicle that would be parked out of a uh, harm reduction site is certainly not intended to deter people from using that site. It's remarkably consistent, though, the presence of, of police, not just parked randomly on the block, but right in front of Insight, mm-hmm. for example. Okay. You know, and and this this is a practice that we've seen documented in other police forces, too. So it seems to me there must be some, some reason that it's not just a random uh, parking spot. Are you, so are, is the suggestion that by parking an empty police vehicle outside of Insight or the Molson, it's going to prevent people from It absolutely using drugs? does, okay. yeah. Okay, well, fair, fair comment. Um, I can say from my own personal experience in walking the beat down there, police presence in the downtown east side doesn't appear to be a significant deterrent for a whole lot of drug use to begin with. We always encourage people to use... Uh, those harm reduction sites because we do believe it saves lives but now that you know that this has the effect would you or would the vpd consider stopping doing this well certainly if there's if if we become aware of something that is deterring uh, people from safely using drugs it's something we can take under consideration for sure and if it's as simple as as a place where a vehicle is parked uh, if somebody feels unsafe or does not feel like that's um, uh, allowing them to access those harm reduction facilities it's certainly fair common. It's certainly we can take under consideration, but I can assure you that nobody's parking vehicles in front of harm reduction facilities to uh, deter people from using those. Okay, so how about the patrols that go inside of harm reduction facilities? 
I'm not aware of patrols that go inside harm reduction facilities. Um, there's no enforcement or patrols that take place inside harm reduction facilities. But, we, but we've had staff and even uh, the management of these places report to us, including badge numbers of people who do this. I can tell you as a beat officer who worked down there for a number of years, I spent the majority of my, actually my entire operational career working uh, in and around that neighborhood. Uh, I've never seen officers do routine patrols through a harm reduction facility. We respond as needed uh, when, we, when we're called for help, uh, which is quite often uh, we respond and we have an excellent working relationship with. Do you respond to overdoses? We don't respond to overdoses unless there's a greater, um, uh, unless we're needed there for uh, safety, security, or if there's a greater um, public safety risk. So we, we talked to uh, a couple of people who've worked at, at all of these sites and, and maybe a combined, you know, 20 years of, of doing mm-hmm. this sort of work. And they, they did say, particularly once, that there was some, some, some good relationships, so mm-hmm. some, some positive moments. They also said because of the times that you do show up, um, the interference sometimes with the, the people who work in the site responding to the overdoses. They said that there's a sort of hesitancy to dial 911. There's, a, there's this sort of um, moment where people are like, we risk having this wild card on the scene. We obviously, if somebody needs 911, uh, they need to call 911. We encourage them to call 911. And uh, I appreciate that there's... Um, there's challenges in that neighborhood. And, you know, when we talk about the four pillars, uh, our pillar is primarily enforcement. And um, there is still a, um, uh, there is still a hesitation um, in a lot of cases for um, people because they are worried or concerned that the police are going to come and um, they're worried about that enforcement uh, uh, part of of that pillar. So uh, I, know, I know I'm not I'll, articulating I'll get, myself no, 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 very well that's, here, that's but cool. let me, let me, maybe I'll, I can rephrase that. I'll but. get off parking yeah. for a second. Just yeah. ask you to explain, like, what is the vision of the enforcement pillar as it's practiced right now? Um, our enforcement priorities are uh, targeting uh, sophisticated, organized um, uh, drug operations that produce and manufacture dangerous drugs. Uh, for sale and for profit. So we're not, you're not going to see police officers uh, walking around the downtown east side uh, arresting somebody for drug possession. We don't do that. Um, and we haven't done that for some time. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the street level and yeah. then the higher level. Sure. I'll, br- I'll, I'll break it up. Yeah, sure. What we also hear is that maybe people don't get charged, but the drugs just get, uh, y- y- you know, taken. Um, drugs and money get taken. Uh, like, I don't understand that because the drug user now has to go get more drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't really solve anything. We don't really do anything. And I really read in your blog your frustration, which I, which I share, that nothing changes, <laughs> that you're on this hamster wheel. Yeah, that that hamster just seems wheel, like for a, sure. For sure. <laughs> and it's funny. When I, you know, I, I, I went through it myself, and I've seen a lot of other police officers go through it. Uh, you start working down there as a, as a young officer. Let me just speak for myself. I started working down there in 2006 as a young officer, and you show up there and you think I'm going to I'm going to have an impact on this community and I'm going to change this community uh, for the better and the way I'm going to do it is by enforcement uh, I'm, we can arrest our way out of this and then you realize after a short time you can't arrest your way out of this this is a much bigger problem this is a uh, this is a, a health issue uh, as much as it is a crime issue that said our job is to enforce 
uh, enforce the law. We do have a significant amount of discretion on how we enforce that law. And sometimes there are cases where our officers will will seize drugs from people. Uh, and there are cases where our police officers will arrest people for small amounts and under aggravating circumstances. But by and large, we, we get it. We don't, we're not out there targeting uh, drug addicts. We want people to get the help that they need. We want people to use harm reduction facilities. We don't want to deter that. I don't doubt that you've had good interactions and good relationships with people there. But you know, when you guys come on the block, there's a kind of a bow wave in front of you. And uh, people warn each other, it ripples down oh, yeah. the block. People yeah. say cops on the block. People say six up. Yeah. And, and there, the block changes by the time you get there. Mm-hmm. So you're in, there's a bubble around you as you move through the world, mm-hmm. as police move through the world. Um, and you see a different version of reality. Oh, and I'm aware. I can remember working out of the old beat enforcement team office at 312 Main Street, and we would walk out those front doors, and you would hear somebody at the Carnegie yell, six, and then you'd hear it echoing down the street. Even if we were in plain clothes, you walk out and, you know, you get, you know, six, six up. Um, as, and everybody knows we're there, and that's fine. We are, like I say, we're trying to be visible police presence to help people. We're not, you know, we're, we're there to, like I say, try to make life a little bit better for, um, for a community that's got a lot of challenges. You see the disconnect I'm struggling with. If we were having this conversation in front of the membership of Vandu, yeah. the people would laugh us out the door mm. because every drug user I know has had negative interactions with police, even in this more recent uh, enlightened era. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I don't know anybody who's, who's free of that. So I don't know anybody who has a, you know, a life that's free of that uh, stigma that's caused by criminalization, right? Mm-hmm. Like people will try to evade you, try to use when you're not around yeah. in places where you aren't, will not want to talk to you. Can I t- just, it, it, the, the way it's affected my life is that my partner knows, she, uh, she's known me for a long time, been together for a long time. She knows what I'm doing here today. And she says, please call me when this is done so that I know you're safe. So when I leave here, when I go out the front door, I'm going to, you know, text her just to say everything's good or whatever, you know, but it's just like, and she's quite nervous this morning. And so when you, when you have a role in the, in the overdose crisis, uh, it's, it's primarily as an enemy of drug users. Um, listen, I get it. People don't want to get their dope taken away from them. People don't want to get arrested. It is illegal. Let's remember that it's, that it is illegal. And that's a whole other discussion. Uh, that I don't have any control of. Our job is to enforce the law. We enforce the laws that we're given, and granted, we have some discretion. But um, if I'm breaking the law, I'm going to avoid the. I'm I'm, I'm going to be reluctant to hang out with the cops too. So right? if I told you I had a point of heroin like right here in this pocket, you you wouldn't be compelled to to do anything. You would have the discretion just let that go, or yeah. I don't, by the way, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not totally <laughs> yeah. fucking whack to walk into a cop shop with a pocket full of heroin. Let me, let me but, give you, you know. an example. We don't have officers stationed outside of InSight uh, checking people as they go in. We don't have police officers who do patrols around InSight. We don't do warrant checks in there. The, but it the, is a frustration for police officers uh, and the community to see open-air drug use. And we do have a role in the community to serve everybody in that community. And if you look at the downtown east side, it is, it's, a challenging, uh, it's a challenging community to serve. And it's, uh, it's a much more diverse community now than it was um, 
back in 2006, when I started working down there, all you have to do is look at some of the mar- the market housing that's been built around there, stuff that's going on down in Chinatown, some of the the hipster clubs that have opened up around there. So how does that and change? We, how does and, that and, change and, your just job? Just let me finish. And we do we do have a lot of. Um, uh, we do have a lot of people in that community coming to that community who we didn't have or living in that community who we didn't have before. And um, those people uh, who visit the community, who frequent the community, who live in the community, who are not drug users, who are not, um, uh, um, who are not uh, advocates for, um, for, for decriminalization or legalization of drugs, uh, we have to serve them too. How do, you, how do you think the job has changed since that neighborhood has changed, since the, the sort of arrival of, of condos and, and more upscale housing around it? I don't think the job has changed as a result of uh, additional people, more diversity in the downtown east side, except for the fact that it has become significantly uh more challenging because there's diverse needs. Uh, if we walk down towards, uh, you know, um, uh, if we walk uh, west, there's there's condos where there didn't used to be condos. If we walk towards Chinatown, there's more market housing where there didn't used to be uh, market housing. And there are people uh, in that community now who perhaps demand uh, or expect uh, a different level of uh, police response or police service than, than, than we had before. At the end of the day, our job is to serve all people in the community. Our job is to serve the diverse needs of the community. And it, like I say, it's very challenging to serve because there are diverse needs. Right. But we enforce we enforce the law. We work, try and work with uh, everybody in that community to meet the individual needs of, of all the various people who live there. So I said I was going to ask you about the street and then go up and ask yeah, you about sure. the mid-level. And and I, I remember uh, this one time. I, I was a daily heroin user, injection heroin mm-hmm. user. And I remember this one time, there was, in this time in the city, there was kind of like three major suppliers or choke points to the, to the heroin supply, and, and you guys got one of them. Okay. And I, I know this is a hard thing to do, involves a lot of work and everything, but uh, the cost of my drugs doubled overnight. Like, <clears throat> it went to 90 or $95 a quarter for heroin. Supply which, and demand, right? Yeah. yeah. I have never seen the price before, after, since. It was, it was amazing. And, and even my dealer said, you shouldn't do this this is really crappy dope. Like, don't waste your money. And, and I was just like, uh, we have no choice, you know. Uh, so we did. And I, so then I was scrambling around like everybody else to try yeah. and find decent dope. And at the same time, there was this vacuum that opened up there. And there was all this explosion of sort of small-scale violence as the, as the, as the vacuum tried to fill itself. And, and I see you guys have all these different operations to try and go and target the the mid-level, uh, you know, like Operation Throne and Operation this and that. But what what is the what is the plan there? Like, I know you said getting up and, and not bothering the people on the street, but getting that mid-level. But even when you get that mid-level, it just, it creates more chaos on the street. And it just, it seems to me it's more part of that hamster wheel that, that we were talking about that, that you express so so much in your blog. Um, what's what's the goal? What's the plan there? We We want to... Um, protect people. We want to save lives. We want to target and disrupt organized and sophisticated criminal organizations. Um, our drug uh, investigations, our, our higher level drug investigations, things that don't take place on the street, do target higher level, um, more sophisticated, organized drug investigations. People who traffic, uh, produce, manufacture, 
um, drugs, um, make profit off of it. Um, and these are harmful drugs that are distributed to, uh, to people who um, are, are folks like we've been, talk- we've been talking about, people who are addicted uh, and people who need to use to survive. Um, so the end game is to protect the we, community we, from drugs by ch- choking off the drugs. Well, we we want to protect the community from uh, harmful drugs. Uh, we've had we've been in the midst of a, a fentanyl crisis since 2014, um, and the fentanyl is in the in the drug supply, and we it's killing people. We don't no wanna, doubt. We no don't doubt. Want. I, I, so I'm just trying to untangle the the trying to choke off the supply uh, at the same time, and, and I'm arguing that trying to choke off the supply right now accelerates us towards more dangerous things. It's they call it the iron law of prohibition. You know, like alcohol prohibition, everyone drinks beer. They make they make alcohol legal. It's moonshine overnight, right? Because it's easier to smuggle. It's stronger. All that stuff. And so the same thing happens with the, with the drugs now, right? Like it it goes from strong China white heroin to fentanyl to carfentanil to whatever's next, right? And it goes from smoking opium a hundred years ago to shooting heroin, uh, you know, in the in the twentieth century. And so all that all that enforcement effort, um, even where you put it in the middle, uh, is still having this effect of accelerating this problem. So I'm trying to I'm trying to understand what does the VPD hope to accomplish by that enforcement effort. Our objective is to uh, disrupt uh, and dismantle criminal uh, enterprises, organized, sophisticated um, drug producers, people who illegally uh, produce, manufacture, traffic, and profit from the sale of uh, illicit substances. Don't they keep growing back? It's a complex issue. It is a complex issue, and there is a vacuum created. Right. Does that mean we stop? Right. So if you and me had had this conversation back when I'm talking about when my dealer's dealer's dealer yeah. got, got busted, yeah. um, you would have been saying this because it was you know China white, strong heroin at the time. Yeah. We got to protect people from harmful drugs, right? Yeah. And so there was there's a lot of pressure put on heroin. And because nothing stands still, then we get fentanyl. So you put the pressure on fentanyl. Now we're getting carfentanil, right? And carfentanil and benzos. And, and so it's like, we, it's, it's not that we're on a hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. We're on a hamster wheel that's falling off a cliff, right? So each cycle gets worse. Mm-hmm. So that's what I see. I'm mm-hmm. trying to imagine, given, given what Chief Palmer and people have said about harm reduction, how, how these Super things complex. fit together. Yes. So what do, what do, you, what's, what do you suggest? I'll tell you, I, what I think the next step of the evolution is, is for everyone to fully embrace that this isn't a criminal issue. And that would mean for the VPD, you basically stand down. You use your discretion and just absent yourself from the drug war. And, and that, to me, would relieve so much of the harms that I'm seeing and hearing reported to me. You know, you guys don't show up to uh, monitor, um, you know, a, a heart clinic or, or a, you know, a triple bypass or something like that. If this is truly a non-criminal issue, a health issue or whatever, then we might just not see you anymore, you know? Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> little, little nod, <laughs> kind of frown, kind of think, kind of, yeah. Eh.
done and, and I'm okay and we're walking away from the cop shop right now. Uh, okay, thanks. Yeah, I feel good. Glad to be leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, see ya. Bye. On the block, you hear the call. Six up. That means watch your back. Such is the life of the criminalized drug user. Watching our backs. All the time. Laws make us criminals, but enforcement makes us corpses. Policing drives us underground. We become afraid to access healthcare services. We use fast, in secret, and alone. And we slam it all in one go. Police have the discretion not to mess with drug users. And governments don't have to fund drug enforcement. It's a choice. We can get off this hamster wheel. Last month, Crackdown was one of many organizations to sign a letter to the British Columbia Minister of Public Safety, Mike Farnworth. We called on government to, quote, divert police resources away from drug possession enforcement, unquote, because the cops get a huge share of resources spent on the overdose crisis. But the minister said no. And the federal minister of health told us decriminalization is off the table. And so did Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Harm reduction and enforcement are at odds. Police have to stop parking outside of safe injection sites. They have to stop jacking people's dope. They have to stop showing up at ODs. Police have to stand down. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Special thanks this month to all the people who shared stories about their run-ins with the Vancouver cops. Know your rights. Find information on our website. Crackdown's editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Sharice Kiwat. R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown is produced by Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Sam Fenn, Gordon Caddick, and Polly Vigier. Special thanks to Al Fowler for helping us do field recordings. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, lead of the Qualitative and Community-Based Research Program of the BC Centre on Substance Use. Ryan is also assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Original score written and performed by Sam Finn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, James Ash, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam, with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Abbott. We get funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you like what we do, support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Crackdown is a harm reduction site. We do Narcan training. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review, please. It helps. We're also on the radio, on CITR and Co-op Radio in Vancouver, and on CFUR in Prince George. We're happy to be on your radio, too. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is CrackdownPod.com. Our next episode drops at the end of August. Be safe, look out for each other, and keep six.
the neighborhood going? Good, good. They just seen me turn the video on, so yeah. I gotta do it differently. <laughs> so, uh, without looking, tell me what's going on. We're on uh, the 100 block here. Yeah, we're on the 100 block. It seems that the Popos are harassing but, uh, vendors again. Yeah. Well, they're on to us, so. They're definitely. So yeah. maybe we should go down to the corner and wait for them? Let's do it. Okay. All right. You're remarkably good with the camera behind your back. Well, I was trying to see them in your eyes, eh? <laughs> but yeah, you notice as soon as we Damn. stop there. You're crafty. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, are they still here? No, they left. Their car's gone. They left. Yeah. Right on. We scared them off. Hey? Yeah, <laughs> we did it. We did. You have been listening to a sided media production. C I D E D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.